Peace be upon you. So God willing, today I wanted to talk about my philosophy when studying the Quran. One of my favorite verses in the Quran, in Surah 18, verse 109, it says, Say, if the oceans were ink for the words of my Lord, the ocean would run out before the words of my Lord run out, even if we doubled the ink supply. A similar statement is made in Surah 31, verse 27, it says, If all the trees on earth were made into pens, and the ocean supplied the ink augmented by seven more oceans, the words of God would not run out. God is almighty, most wise. And my takeaway from these verses is that this Quran, these 6,346 verses that we have, is everything we need for our salvation, for understanding what are God's laws and how to apply them in our life. If God wanted to, he could have wrote volumes and volumes explaining every detail. But it wasn't necessary. He gave us this concise complete book for us to have all our answers to any question we have regarding our salvation. And in law, if you wanted to create a complete contract, a contract that will never need to be amended, a contract that doesn't need any additional clauses, that is going to cover every conceivable situation, it's literally impossible. There's always going to be criteria that are going to fall outside of that contract that lawyers will have to go back and revisit if one of these outlying conditions take place. But this is not the case of the Quran. The Quran does not require amendments, changes. It's a complete book. It has every single answer, every conceivable situation, moral dilemma we come across. The answer for that is in the Quran. Now the question is, how do we understand the Quran? How do we apply a philosophy that's consistent throughout the Quran to make sure we come to the right understanding? In Surah 4, verse 82, it reads, Why do they not study the Quran carefully? If it were from other than God, they would have found in it numerous contradictions. And to me, this is the answer, is that if we're studying the Quran, we have to make sure that our understanding, if we extrapolate any understanding, that it's concise throughout every single verse of the Quran. Because if a flaw, a contradiction is formed in our understanding, based on even one single verse, Therefore, our understanding needs to be refined because the Quran is perfect. It's fully detailed. It's us that has to be, in essence, revisit our understanding if we want to have the correct understanding of the Quran. And I think of the Quran similar to a mathematical proof, a theorem. What makes a theorem so profound is that if any step, any assertion within that proof to assert a theorem is flawed, the entire theorem falls apart. And there is no other more exacting, more concise uh, science than it is in math. Because something that's mathematically proven, it holds true for every conceivable situation. It's irrefutable. Something as simple as 2 plus 2 is 4 is always going to be the case for all of eternity. And one of the fascinating things is when you study mathematical proofs and theorems, you realize that it's not that they're just doing iteration and iteration trying to prove that something is correct. They constructed an argument that literally in every conceivable situation, that statement is going to hold true. One of the first theorems that most people get introduced to in school is Pythagorean theorem, where it shows that in a right triangle, if you take the two short sides and you say a squared plus b squared is equal to c squared, where c squared is the hypotenuse, the long side of the triangle opposite where the right angle is. This statement holds true not just in some conditions, 
And they haven't devised this uh, statement because they tried a bunch of combinations and it held true. It holds true in over in every conceivable proportion of a right triangle. Uh, they have over 350 ways to prove that this holds true in every conceivable way. And there was an example a couple decades back in uh, 1993 where finally they resolved a play off Pythagorean theorem. And this was called Fermat's Last Theorem. There is a author by the name of Simon Singh. He wrote a book. It's called Fermat's Enigma. And was looking at this theorem that Fermat devised that he never officially provided the proof for. And Fermat was the father of number theory from the 17th century. And for over 300 years, no one could prove this theorem. And the theorem looks very simple on paper. Basically, what it postulates is that a to the n plus b to the n is equal to c to the n for no numbers, no whole numbers greater than 2. And this is something that literally a child can kind of like wrap their heads around. But to prove that this statement holds true for every conceivable um, combination, it took over 300 years before a Princeton professor who in 1986 started research on this problem and spent seven years working tirelessly in secrecy to prove that this theorem holds true, that a to the n plus b to the n is equal to c to the n for no whole numbers greater than two. And what's fascinating is when he published this in 1993, he presented this. At the beginning, the whole mathematic community, they were uh, astounded. Then they had to go and check his proof. They had to check every single assertion, every single element that he built this theorem on top of to make sure that those were all sound. And someone found a small flaw in one of his assertions. And because of that, the entire theorem fell apart. And this is what makes math so profound is that if you can find one flaw in one of the assertions, one of the postulations, the entire standing falls apart. And then every single conceivable theorem that was based on that theorem also becomes uh, uh, discredited. So this professor, he spent another year refining this proof to patch that one flaw that was detected. And then in 1994, he republished it, it checked out, and he proved that without a shadow of doubt for every conceivable combination that this statement holds true. Now, this is what makes math so profound, and it's similar to the Quran. If we make an assertion in the Quran for a particular understanding, we have to make sure that it doesn't just uh, meet the criteria of one verse, but that it doesn't contradict any verse in the Quran. One of the fascinating things is the people who love to attack the Quran, what they love to do is to pull one verse in isolation and try to form uh, an understanding based on that verse, irrespective if that understanding forms numerous contradictions throughout the entire Quran. In Surah 9, verse 109, it reads, is one who establishes his building on the basis of reverencing God to gain his approval better, or one who establishes his building on the brink of a crumbling cliff that falls down with him into the fire of hell. God does not guide the transgressing people. If we build our understanding on false narratives, on false assumptions, all we're doing is we're building a, uh, a structure on a insecure foundation that's going to lead us to hell because one of the worst things we can do is if we attribute lies to god if we come up with an understanding that contradicts what god told us in the quran and we attribute that to god god calls this one of the worst offenses 
In 2968 says, who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God or rejects the truth when it comes to him? Is hell not a just retribution for the disbelievers? In 3932 it reads, who is more evil than one who attributes lies to God while disbelieving in the truth that has come to him? Is hell not a just requital for the disbelievers? So we put on a lot of responsibility when we stick our uh, necks out and we make an assumption based on the Quran that we don't refine, that we don't go and analyze and say, okay, does this form contradictions? Because if we're attributing lies to God and we're not critical about our assumptions, about what it is that we assert from the Quran, then we could be one of the worst individuals in the hereafter in hell. In Surah 39, verse 23, it says, God has revealed herein the best hadith, a book that is consistent and points out both ways to heaven and hell. This Quran is consistent and it continues in uh, 39, 27, it says, we have cited for the people every kind of example in this Quran that they may take heed, an Arabic Quran, without any ambiguity, that they may be righteous. And it continues in 39, 29, it says, God cites the example who deals with uh, disputing partners, compared to a man who deals with one consistent source. That consistent source is the Quran. Are they the same? Praise be to God, most of them do not know. So God is telling us that this Quran, it's consistent, it's fully detailed, has examples for everything we need concerning our salvation. So if we come to an understanding, we have to make sure it doesn't form a contradiction. One of the famous verses in the Quran about how people twist the understanding of the Quran is in Surah 3, verse 7. It reads, He sent down to you this scripture containing straightforward verses. These are verses that are easy for us to understand. They're concise. They're almost unanimously agreed upon. And it continues, Which constitute the essence of the scripture as well as multiple meaning. Multiple meaning as in they might be ambiguous. There might be multiple ways you can interpret it. Or allegorical verses. And it continues, says, those who harbor doubts in their hearts will pursue the multiple meaning verses to create confusion and to extricate a certain meaning. None knows the true meaning thereof except God and those well-founded in knowledge. They say we believe in this. All of it comes from our Lord. Only those who possess intelligence will take heed. So God is telling us the essence of the Quran is concise. It's easy to understand. But there are some elements that might have a bit of ambiguity that might be way uh, possible to interpret in such a meaning that contradicts the rest of the Quran. And if we pursue these meanings, these multiple meaning verses, to extricate a certain meaning that contradicts the Quran, then we're only leading ourselves astray. Now, the whole reason I'm bringing up this backstory, talking about the Quran in the sense of a theorem, is because this one point, there is this concept that many Muslims believe in the concept of abrogation. They believe that certain verses in the Quran have been abrogated, that they no longer apply. And there's verses that, in essence, supersede them. And rather than taking the Quran as a complete book, something that doesn't contradict, looking at all 6,346 verses, what they do is they cherry pick. They use the Quran a la carte to pick and choose what it is they want to have, irrespective if it creates contradictions in the Quran. And the verse they use to justify such actions is in Surah 2, verse 106. So Surah 2, verse 106, it reads, If we abrogate any miracle or cause it to be forgotten, we produce a better miracle or at least an equal one. Do you not recognize the fact that God is omnipotent? 
This word miracle, it means it's ayat in Arabic. And ayat consistently in the Quran, it means in the sense of a miracle, a proof, but it also in modern day Arabic, it means a verse. And what they do is they say, if we abrogate any verse or cause it to be forgotten, we produce a better verse or at least an equal one. Or they'll use the word uh, revelation. And again, in the context of the Quran, you'll see consistently this word is used in the sense of a proof, a miracle, something of that nature. And if you want an example of this, just look at Surah 10 verse uh, 20. And this is in context to Prophet Muhammad. It says, they say, how come no miracle, ayat, came down to him from his Lord? Say, the future belongs to God, so wait and I'm waiting along with you. So obviously, the Prophet Muhammad, he had revelation. He had verses from God. What he did not have is a physical miracle like that was given to Moses or Jesus. He had the Quran. That was his miracle. But it says, how come no miracle, right? So it shows that this word, it does mean uh, miracle. But in addition, if you take it to mean that God causes certain verses to be abrogated, certain verses in the Quran that we have to disregard. It creates numerous other contradictions in the Quran. And I'm going to show you. If you look at 6115, it reads, The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate, change, substitute his words. He is the hear, the omniscient. God is telling us this Quran is complete in truth and justice. And nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to substitute. Nothing is going to abrogate his words. And we see a similar statement in 1827. It says, you shall recite what is revealed to you of your Lord's scripture. Nothing shall abrogate his words. You shall not find any other source beside it. Meaning that the Quran, again, the words are complete. In 7837, it says, your Lord in the, uh, of the heavens and the earth, everything between them, the most gracious, no one can abrogate his decision. When God makes a decision, when God reveals to us this Quran for all of eternity, for all of mankind, it is our duty to uphold every single verse of it. If we want to cherry pick certain interpretations at the expense of other verses, we're only leading ourselves astray. And you see people, they when they come up with these crazy understandings of the Quran, consistently what they do is they're abrogating some verses. They're saying those don't apply anymore. One of the famous examples is in the context of uh, intoxication. They'll take Surah 4, verse 43, where it reads, O you who believe, do not observe the contact person a lot while intoxicated, and say that we are allowed to be intoxicated when we're not performing our salat. And what's interesting about this is if they do that, what happens? What happens is that you're contradicting Surah 5, verse 90. It says, O you who believe intoxicants and gambling in the altars of idols and the games of chance are abominations of the devil. You shall avoid them that you may succeed. So God is calling intoxicants and gambling. It says these are abominations of the devil. And realize it doesn't say merely don't take them. It says you shall avoid them. This is the same terminology that God bestowed to Adam and Eve in paradise. It said do not approach this tree. It does not say do not eat from this tree. It says do not approach this tree. Now what's interesting is in Surah 4 verse 44, literally the next verse, when it says do not observe your contact prayers while intoxicated, it reads, have you noted those who received a portion of your Lord's scripture and how they choose to go astray? God allows this to take place, to bring out our true convictions. Because people are going to pursue these multiple meaning verses, these verses that can be twisted and interpreted in such a way. But it's easily identifiable because, again, it creates contradictions.
Another one that you'll see a lot of people cherry picking is in the sense of justifying violence and aggression in the Quran. And one of the verses that they'll use is in Surah 33, verse 61. It says, they have incurred condemnation wherever they go. Unless they stop attacking you, you uh, they may be taken and killed. And they say, look, this is justification that individuals can just for no reason whatsoever be taken and killed. And again, what they negate to understand is the Quran is not one verse. It's 6,346 verses. If a contradiction is formed, it's not the Quran that's flawed. It's our understanding that's flawed. We need to kill our egos and see what does God have to say. For one thing to point out, every time in the Quran where it's talking about, in essence, uh, attacking during war, it uses a word that's only used six times in the Quran. And the root of it is thagath, which means to encounter someone in war. Specifically, the context is war. And you'll see it used consistently in all six of these occasions in the Quran where people will cherry pick one verse to try to show that, look, the Quran is violent, uh, it's aggressive, this and that. But more so, again, other contradictions are formed. If you look at what are the rules of war in the Quran, they're spelt out in Surah 2, verse 190 through 193. And it gives us guidelines because, again, the Quran is for all humankind. It's for the entire world until the Day of Judgment. And obviously, war transpires. So the question is, what are the rules of war? And it says, you may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you, but do not aggress. God does not love the aggressors. So God is setting clear guidelines that we can defend ourselves, but we are not allowed to be aggressors. And it continues in 191, says, you may kill those who wage war against you, and you may evict them once they evicted you. Oppression is worse than murder. Do not fight them at the sacred masjid unless they attack you therein. If they attack you, you may kill them. This is the just retribution for the disbelievers. If they refrain, then God is forgiver most merciful. You may also fight them to eliminate oppression and to worship God freely. If they refrain, you shall not aggress. Aggression is permitted only against the aggressors. So we're seeing consistently that God is allowing us to defend ourselves. At times of war, if someone's attacking us, we can aggress them in the same manner that they're aggressing towards us, but we are not allowed to be the aggressor. This is very cut and dry. If you come to an understanding that you think that God, the most gracious, the most merciful, is allowing random acts of violence to innocent individuals, you are severely mistaken because, again, this creates numerous contradictions in the Quran. And we have so many examples. We see the aspects of uh, a lot of people that pull the, uh, in Surah 4, talks about the inheritance laws. And we did an entire episode spelling out how there are no contradictions in the inheritance laws. But again, if someone is finding a contradiction and they dwell on that, they believe that the Quran is flawed, all it's doing is it's exposing them that they don't believe in God. They don't believe in this Quran. And God allows them to go down that path. In a previous episode, we talked about the concept of people justifying sex slaves, the disgusting act of taking someone against their will and forcing yourself upon them. And they try to twist the words of God to justify such atrocities. And when they do this, again, they're creating numerous contradictions or the aspect of being able to beat one's wife. They think that the most gracious, most merciful is advocating for individuals to beat their wife. And again, if your understanding is causing contradictions, we have to refine, redefine our understanding because God's book is perfect. It's fully detailed. It's complete. It covers every single scenario. 
And if we ever come to an understanding that is flawed, that is erroneous, some contradictions formed, or it shows God isn't most gracious, most merciful, we need to reassess the way we understand these verses. God gives us the answer to what we do when we come to an some understand that word. Let's say someone poses a question and we don't know what the answer is. And it's fine to just put it aside and say, maybe God will tell me the answer when the time is right. In Surah 5 verse 101, it reads, O you who believe, do not ask about matters which if revealed to you prematurely would hurt you. If you ask about them in the light of the Quran, they will become obvious to you. God has deliberately overlooked them. God is forgiver, clement. And it continues as others before you have asked the same questions then became disbeliever therein. If we are not patient and we don't wait for God to reveal the right answers to us, answers that eliminate any contradictions in the Quran, and we pursue a understanding that we full know is creating contradictions, all we're doing is we're leading ourselves astray. We're becoming disbelievers in God's message. God tells us in Surah 20, verse 114, says, Most exalted is God, the only true king. Do not rush into uttering the Quran before it is revealed to you and say, My Lord, increase my knowledge. This is the prayer. Anytime we come to something that we don't understand, someone asks us a question and we say, We just don't know what the answer is. We implore God to increase our knowledge because what we don't want to do is form an understanding, attribute lies to God that contradicts what God says to us in the Quran. So God willing, we can take this understanding, we can apply it throughout the entire Quran and ask ourselves, does our understanding form contradictions? Because if it does, then it needs to be reassessed. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.